I'm so excited to welcome Brian Kenny, the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for Harvard Business School, to this episode of CMO Pulse. Brian, welcome. Wonderful to chat with you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so thrilled that the fall foliage is blooming. You could actually literally keep that all year round, which would just make me so happy. We created uh, Zoom backgrounds. I'm sure everybody did this, you know, because we knew we were going to be on Zoom a lot. So my creative director uh, did a whole bunch of these. We've got, you know, about 30 of them that people can use. And it's indoor spaces and outdoor spaces. And at least early on in the pandemic, it was great because you could at least feel like you were, you know, in some place that everybody recognized. Uh, So, but uh, it's a beautiful campus. So we want to make sure we show it off where we can. Absolutely. Well, I promised no hardball questions, but I am going to start with something that jumped out to me as I was doing my uh, my preparation. So your Twitter profile notes your role with Harvard Business School by day, and then it does actually explain that you are lead singer for Kramer Hill by night. Can you tell me a little bit about how you balance these two very, very critical roles? Yes, the Kramer Hill role is very critical. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and it's come up a couple of times and I put it in my profile, maybe to be a little bit provocative, but I've been um, a musician since I was a child. I've been a performing musician for most of my life. Uh, and for me, it's a great creative outlet. Uh, so Kramer Hill is a three piece band that I front and it's with two of my best friends. We've been playing music together for 40 years uh, and we play out a couple of times a month and we have a blast doing it that we're just a straight up cover band. Uh, so we've been a little bit starved for for business because COVID really shut down all the live entertainment. And I'm happy to say, you know, we're recording this interview the day before our first Massachusetts-based show in almost two years. Amazing. Uh, so we're taking the stage tomorrow night and very excited about it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> did you guys keep practicing during the pandemic or how did you keep the momentum going? I'm going to give your, your viewers a little bit inside information. If they go to our YouTube channel, you'll see what we were up to during COVID. We, we turned to recording videos. So we recorded some tunes separately and then, you know, mixed them together and did some, some original videos. And uh, we had a blast doing it. It was a way for us to stay present with the people who, who follow us. And they're all available on a, our YouTube channel which is Kramer Hill uh, on YouTube with a C. Amazing. So everyone watching this on YouTube will make sure that the list is uh, the, the link to the, the right channel is just awesome. down there. In right. And say and nice things, please. Right. I know it's YouTube and you get to troll, but just <laughs> <laughs> incredible. Well, diving in a little. So I know that the role that you hold now, so there has been a function like this, um, at Harvard Business School before, but not quite like this, right? So the the marketing component is new. Can you tell me a little bit about what you what attracted you to this role and how you've shifted, you know, not just the communications uh, practice within um, HBS, but but also brought in that marketing component. Sure. Um, so when I got here, which was 14 years ago, which is amazing because for, for marketing people, that's a long, really long time, oh, really? lifetimes to be anywhere. And that was true of me too. I had, I had, you know, bounced around quite a bit in and out of higher education throughout my career. Um, but in almost every place I had been, the roles, marketing and communications were, were integrated. And here they hadn't taken that step yet. Um, higher ed is gen- typically a little bit behind where the corporate world was on this. I think that was true then. I don't think it's true now. And we can delve into that if you want. But uh, it wasn't integrated here when I got here. There was a 
communications team that dealt with sort of traditional PR and crisis management. And there was a group of people who were designing brochures and, and websites and things, but I wouldn't call them a marketing group because there really wasn't any strategy tied to it. So like part of, assets creation. Yeah, exactly. So part of uh, my job description was to help to create a world-class marketing function and to integrate those two things. Um, and, uh, you know, I began that really by just co bringing everybody, co-locating everybody because they were in separate buildings even uh, and starting to create a little bit of a of, of team. Um, and I would say that, you know, that, that it gelled very quickly. I think people understood the, the, the sensibility in doing that. And if you look, you know, sort of fast forward to where we are now, we are wholly integrated. There's, you know, there's the, we still call it marketing communications, but nothing happens, you know, independent of everybody else on the team. So we look very much like a traditional agency where we have uh, designers and we have writers and we have, you know, web analytics people. Uh, we have a PR function that manages social media as well as traditional media. And I would say that we are, in terms of the percentage of what we do, we're probably 80% digital uh, in terms of our marketing approach. Very little print these days, and even less with COVID. I think we learned that a lot of the stuff that we used to rely on for print, just we don't need to do anymore. We can really do things virtually. So, yeah, well, that, I want to dig in a little more there. So, can you talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, maybe just even for your space in general, but how did you shift? your practice during COVID and what do you think is shifting in the minds or experiences of the people that you want to reach? Um, and I know that I'm sure you do communicate and stay in touch with a lot of your alums. I guess I'm thinking more of the people who would potentially, you know, evaluating or wanting to get into B school and others. Like how, how have you thought about that and what's shifted? So, so, I mean, the immediate shift was pretty jarring for everybody. Like everybody, it doesn't matter what field you're in or what sector you work in. I think uh, like everybody else, we made the decision within a matter of days to go fully remote. Uh, and that meant everything across this whole enterprise. So the teaching activities, the research activities, the business activities all had to go fully remote. Um, marketing and communications takes on, a, I think, a a renewed significance in that kind of a situation because we became the glue that sort of held the community together. Um, and internal communications was probably more important in those first, those early months, even than external communications were helping people who were kind of disoriented and like, oh my gosh, now I'm here and I'm not connected to anybody, helping people uh, remain connected and feel like a community. Uh, and so we, we, I think we spent a lot of time thinking about our internal communication strategy, keeping students apprised of what was happening, you know, connecting staff and faculty to each other and making sure that everybody knew what was going on. And that required us to very rapidly uh, innovate on our tools that we use. Um, you know, how could we work together remotely in, in, in effective ways? And I think it accelerated, it gave us muscles that we didn't know we had. We accelerated our ability to create things. Websites used to take an inordinately long amount of time here for a lot of different reasons. We got much better at that. We got much more facile at throwing up a website very quickly or, you know, coming up with a new series. We created a, a series called um, Managing Through Crisis, which was a, a Zoom-based a video series where I interviewed faculty who had expertise in different areas, supply chain logistics or negotiations, all the things that were happening during COVID that had a business uh, you know, facet that we could bring to the surface and say, how do we think about this topic 
given what we're all going through. Um, and that was a way to engage people and to keep them, keep the brand in front of people in a relevant way. I think the challenge for marketing is always, how do you remain relevant to your audience? How do you serve them content or products or services when they need them at the right time? Um, and that was, um, you know, our way of adapting, I think, in the, in the crisis to make sure that we were staying relevant and providing useful, valuable information to people. And your, I mean, Harvard Business School is obviously a very uh, high status institution, a very desirable, you know, business school from a, um, you know, from from most consumers' perspective. Uh, are you seeing like what has been the shift for you in people wanting to go to B school? Are they wanting it for different reasons? Like, I, I'm curious because I feel like almost everyone I talk to is looking at their life and going, "Am I doing the right thing? Is this all there is? Like, should I be?" So, how is that playing out in your world? Like, is it more people wanting to maybe relook at their education? Is it is it different? Like, can you share a little bit about what you've been seeing? Sure. Well, I think if you look at our online division, that's a great indicator of the fact that what you say is true, that people are really assessing, you know, um, what are my skills? How can I enhance what I have? How can I take this, you know, this opportunity to think differently about my career and what I'm doing? Because our online um, uh, student population grew significantly during COVID. Now, part of that is obviously that that medium worked really well in that situation, but that didn't come at the expense of the MBA program or, you know, we, we had to completely uh, shut down our executive education program, which is uh, about 12,000 executives who come through here a year. And so that went dark for about six months, but we never stopped fielding inquiries and people wanting to come and, and, uh, and learn here. So I think the the desirability of of the of the uh, the brand and the 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 way that that people get educated here never went away. Um, I think the relevance of uh, in person learning takes on kind of a renewed significance when you've gone through a situation like we have here, because there was a lot of talk over the last five or 10 years when MOOCs came out about the fact that the traditional campus is going to disappear. You know, people will be doing all their learning online. It's going to drive down the cost of education. It's going to, you know, close the, the equity gap where it comes to education. I think there's some truth to some of those things, but clearly we know that the, the in-person on-campus experience is as important as, as it ever was, if not more so, for people being able to connect with each other in real ways. Um, and so, you know, now we've learned that we can do things in the virtual world that we probably never would have tried before, which is great because that extends our reach into the world. And we're going to continue to cultivate those things. But at the same time, we're going to double down on the in-person experience and make sure that even in the face of something like like this pandemic, we can still have people come to campus and have a, a rich learning experience. You reference being able to move much faster and in many cases I think I think you said build muscles that you didn't even know you had, uh, which is a, a nice way of thinking about that. How did you lead during the crisis, and what did you learn in those first days, weeks, and months? As you were not only going through it yourself as an individual and and with everything on a on a personal level, but you also have this team of people and by the sounds of it, you were also connecting the dots for, for other teams too. But can you talk yeah. a little bit about what your learnings were as, as you sort of dove right into, into that situation? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I think like many institutions, we had talked a lot about 
um, remote work and flex time and, you know, hybrid work environments and things over the years. And I, you know, you and I were chatting a little while ago about the traffic in Boston, which is really horrific. And it was leading up to the pandemic. It was just, I think we had the second worst traffic in the country at that time. So, so really bad. And that, that made us talk a lot about those things, but I don't think we ever really embraced it as a culture. I think we kept, because we're sort of a very traditional, we're an academic institution. We have students on campus and the overriding thought was always, you know what, if this group has to be here to service students, we should all be here. You know, we should all just take our, our medicine, everybody come to work. And, and so we never really, um, I think, built a trust with our employees that they could do what they needed to wherever they were. Yeah. And so this forced us into a situation where we learned that about each other. We learned that we can rely on each other, that that people will do their work. They're not going to go shopping in the middle of the day. They may take their dog for a walk, which, by the way, is great. I advise it. Right, I, right. My yeah. dog loved having me home. Um, so there, so I think that we learned that, that you can trust people. That was one of the most important early learnings. Um, I threw more at my team in those first six months than I ever had before. And they just hit it out of the park every time. Uh, because at the same time we were going through the, the pandemic and still are, we were going through Black Lives Matter. And that really hit this campus hard. It hit colleges everywhere hard. Um, and you know we, we had to really dive into that wholeheartedly to help the school kind of create momentum and move forward uh, in closing the racial equity gap here uh, at the school. Um, so there were all these major shifts that were happening that in any given year, any one of them would, would have, you know, under normal working circumstances would have been a huge lift. And we dealt with every single one of them. And I, I don't think it was anything particular to my leadership style. I've always had a style where I've empowered people to, to do what they do best. I don't get in the way. Um, I let them kind of run with things. And I, you know, that worked wonderfully in this situation. So if anything, we've come out of this as a much stronger, closer team, which is, I guess, um, a little ironic given the fact that we've been far apart. For the sure. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's amazing um, how curative and powerful trust can be too, right? hundred percent. Yeah. You mentioned that your practice now is maybe 80% or so digital um, and you did reference social media. Can you talk a little bit about the role of social media and how um, you're thinking about that, whether it's with respect to connecting with new potential students or staying in touch with um, with your alums? Sure. Back in ancient times, when I came to HBS in 2008, Facebook was only two years old. Uh, Twitter launched that year. So yes. none of these social platforms that we use today existed. And um I think that they have been, for a place like Harvard Business School, who for much of its history uh, sort of was shrouded in mystique, um, which is a good and bad thing, right? Because I think in some ways it created a lot of um, exclusivity around the brand and people didn't really know what happened here, but they knew that you know people that came out of here went on to do really impressive things. But it was very mysterious. And in a world that craves transparency, that just doesn't work anymore. Mm. And I, you know, I grew up 20 minutes from this campus uh, in a blue collar neighborhood uh, in, a, in a suburban area of Boston. I never, you know, thought that the people at Harvard were warm and welcoming. I always thought that, you know, a lot of the same, the negative perceptions about elitism and arrogance, I had a lot of those wrong perceptions until I came here and I actually met some people. And everybody that I met was warm and welcoming and they might be ambitious, but they weren't arrogant. You know, they had big ideas and they wanted to use this platform to help achieve them. So social media for us 
has been a way to bring the real voices of this place to the surface and to make them accessible in a way that they never were before. Uh, and when you can show our students talking about what they're working on, or when you can show our faculty and how passionate they are about the research they do, it immediately changes your perception of what people here are like. That's a hugely powerful tool. Uh, and it has been for us. And, and, you know, we, our job, I tell my team every day is that, you know, we're storytellers. Our job is to tell the story of what's happening at HBS. And we try to do that using the, the voices of the actual people who are doing the work here as much as possible. Well, and, and that I think touches on something else, which is related, but a little different, which is there's an element of brand transformation in that as well, right? Because you go, on the one hand, you have this very elusive, shrouded in mystery, kind of a little out of reach, a little unattainable. And then you have this other voice, which is transparent and full of energy and inclusive and others. How, how did you sort of move the puck across that continuum because they're quite different. Um, And and what was that? What was that like? Was that sort of something that happened, I guess, in your, under your watch, just by necessity, if you're going to be on digital, you can't sort of put everything behind closed doors and, you know, and, and make it all, make it all too hard to get to. I spent a lot of time in the early years telling people that we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Because the nature of social media is that you're handing your brand over to the people you're trying to engage with, and you're giving them access to it in a way that makes you very vulnerable. Um, That's exactly what we needed to do. And I think people here totally understood that and, and, and got the sensibility. You know, we probably, I think we, we never dove headlong into doing things. We're not like... And we're still to this day, not like willy nilly with stuff that we do. I just before I I signed on with you, I just had a conversation with one of my social media managers about TikTok and what would be, you know, what would be an appropriate way for us to have a presence on TikTok? Because it's kind of a frivolous thing, you know, but clearly brands are starting to engage with that platform in in some interesting ways. And so we watch, I think, you know, you would call us maybe second movers where it comes to a lot of these platforms because we want to see how it plays out. There's been a lot of platforms that have, you know, looked like they were going to be uh, amazing, the next big thing, and then they just sort of fizzled. Um, And so we never fortunately invested a lot of time in Vine or even Snapchat or some of the others that just didn't have the staying power. Um, And uh, I think we like to, to observe for a little while and then see how we step into it. And that makes, I think that helps people here feel like we're being thoughtful and responsible with the brand. Um, You know, but I think the word that I would use for what social media allows us to do is to humanize the school, put a human face on it. Yeah, that's, look, and I mean, I'm sure that really paid off when suddenly you couldn't put an in-world, real-life human face on things and you still had to connect. Yeah, yeah. When you, uh, so, you know, you mentioned that you've been um, within higher education for, for most of your career. When you reflect back on some of the different inflection points and turning points for you. What's one that stands out to you as particularly powerful or, or impactful? You know, if I, if I think about the, um, 
the steps that I've taken in my career. I, I kind of came into marketing by accident. I, I was a political science major uh, as an undergraduate. I wanted to go into the Foreign Service and work in the State Department. That was my plan. And I, I had to work for a couple of years to save the money to do that. So I got a job at a small marketing agency uh, on the outskirts of Boston. And I had never had a marketing course. Um, actually, to this day, I've never had a marketing course. So that's between you and me. Don't tell anybody else. <laughs> And I'll just quickly comment. It's it's stunning the amount of CMOs who will say not exactly what you said, but just oh, I didn't plan on it. Yeah. <laughs> Probably infuriating to the people who really want to become CMOs. Yeah. And are on it, you know? <laughs> I don't know if you could get away with it today, but this was a while ago, and and I, I came into it through the creative channel. I I really liked that part of marketing, and it kind of I, I was you know I gravitated towards it, and so I never. Pursue the other route, um, and I think I, I I made logical steps. If you go back and kind of retrace the footing, but for me, the biggest and maybe the most impactful step was when I decided to leave a, a job. I had a job at a, a firm called um, Arthur D. Little, uh, which was a, a big management consulting firm in its day. It's no longer around, sadly. Um, but I had left Boston University to go work at Arthur D. Little, which was a big step because I was leaving, kind of like the the safety of a, of a higher education environment to go to a very competitive management consultancy. Um, but while I was there, I learned a ton about what CEOs and senior executives think about. Uh, and I learned how to communicate uh, to CEOs and to people in the C-suite. And if I think about the track, the arc of my career, you know, having been at Arthur D. Little for, you know, a little over four years and, and sort of absorbing all of that, it was almost like getting an MBA in some ways. Uh, and then moving into an internet company at the dawn of the internet. So I learned a ton about, you know, how the internet works and, and what the promise of it was. And then eventually making my way to Harvard Business School, it almost feels like all those pieces fit together in a really nice way for me to step into this role, because this is a hybrid type of place. We're a school for sure. Uh, it's a rich academic environment here, but we also live very close to practice. I mean, our faculty do research with CEOs. That's how we write the business cases that we publish. Uh, and, and so it feels like I've got one step in both worlds, and that's a very rewarding and exciting place to be. That's, that's incredible. Um, and if you were to go back to the start of your career and give yourself one piece of advice, what would that, what would that advice be? Hmm. That's a good question. Not a hardball question, but it's a really good question. I have to think about it for a second. <laughs> I think this might sound counterintuitive, but I think my advice would be don't try so hard. Um, and by that, I think there were times in my career where I tried too hard to prove to everybody that I knew what I was doing uh, and that I was up to the task. And, you know, that often just didn't work for me. I think, you know, being yourself. So the antithesis of that, like, I, the, antithesis, the, the opposite of that, I guess, would be just be yourself. And for me, um, when I finally accepted that I didn't have to have all the answers and I could sit back and listen and be thoughtful and let other people talk more. That made me a better manager. It made me a better employee. Um, so, you know, I guess don't try so hard is the advice that I would give to anybody who's trying to come here. I can tell, I can tell you right away that the people who do well at Harvard Business School are the, those who come in and don't feel like they need to have all the answers on day one. They're willing to, you know, to sit back and listen and learn before they speak up. There's, there's an element of 
confidence, like self-confidence to that? Where, where does that come from in your experience or maybe even for you personally? Um, I guess it comes from, well, age. <laughs> I'm old. So a lot of it just comes from experience. I don't know if I would have given you that same answer, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, probably not. Um, I will say that that um, music has something to do with it and that performing uh, has something to do with it. Uh, I've been performing since I was a kid. I've I've always uh, been able to be in front of a room and not feel nervous or lack confidence. But false confidence can be dangerous too. So I would say you've got to find that balance between being confident but also being vulnerable. I think vulnerability is equally important. Well, and I mean, talking about performance, there's an element of knowing that you're putting something out there to be judged and that it is what it is, right? It's not It's not being able to control the reactions of everyone in the room. Yeah, um, I'm sure some performers would love that. <laughs> I think marketing people face that every day, right? Because our job, you know, just inherently requires us to be creative and to come up with ideas, be generative with ideas. And so... I think we've all experienced that, you know, a small percentage of those ideas, you know, might might hit, but most of them are going to be, you know, batted down and you get you get better at accepting that over time. Falling in love with your own ideas is is not a way to survive in this particular field. You mentioned that you were attracted to the creative side and sort of came up through the creative. If you were to think of the continuum where you have, you know, some approach marketing from much more of a data and insights-led perspective and others much more driven by the ideas and the creative, where do you sit on that on that continuum? I totally value the data and the analytics. Um, and I, you know, I have people who are really good at, at looking at that and helping me make sense of it. It's never been my strong suit, um, but I value it. And I think, you know, we, we rely on it quite a bit here, but I always come at it from the ideas first. And, you know, when I get excited about an idea, um, you know, that's that to me, that's a, it's a gut feel thing. And I know that, you know, that's probably not the way to run your business, but I think sometimes it's a way you know, you, if you have something that you really feel is going to work, it's worth fighting for. Uh, and, you know, there's been times in my career where I've sort of stood out there as a lone voice advocating for something uh, and pushing it through. And that's scary. But when it works, it's great. And you look you look smart. <laughs> no, we, look, I think I think neither is right or wrong. Right. It's sort of what you're led by. And I think. I think the the best or maybe the most intuitive marketers draw from both, but are always instinctively guided by one a little a little more than the other. Yeah. Um, so as you as you look through to the end of this year and out to twenty twenty two, you know I don't think it's I think it's too early to say we're post pandemic. I think everyone would agree with that. Um, but you know, there's certainly like I know you're back in the office and some of your peers are as well. What are you excited about and what's kind of the next big mountain to climb for, for you? Yeah, so, um, yeah, we are actually fully back on campus, I'll say. Um, so the students are all here um, and they're in class with masks on, but just having them back on campus. They were here last year, but everybody was learning in their dorm room and it felt very quiet. It felt like an empty place. Uh, so we're so excited to have the buzz and the vibrancy back 
on campus. And many of the staff are now coming in, uh, you know, two to three days a week. So we've got you're bumping into old people and those hallway conversations are happening again. It's starting to feel much more normal than it did. And I hope we continue to move in that direction. I think the opportunity ahead for all of us is to continue to uh, explore those areas that we discovered we were capable of during the break and see what promise there is there. Are there things that are worth pursuing and building out? I would say that in our executive education program, after they went dark, they figured out how to go online uh, in a Zoom type platform and do a very respectable job of educating executives wherever they were in the world. Uh, and that's a, a whole new line of business for us now. Um, opens up access to people that would otherwise just not have that optionality. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, our mission is to educate leaders who make a difference in the world and that we are a mission driven, you know, organization. So we we want to push the boundaries of where we can achieve that, whatever it takes us in the world. Uh, and so now we know that um, we've, we've discovered that you can really do a great job with a case method discussion in a virtual environment. And that was always kind of for us the, the barrier to, well, we could never recreate what happens in the live classroom online. Well, actually, it turns out you can't. Uh, and and we know that the, the the people who participated virtually last year found it to be very rewarding and and fulfilling. So uh, I think there are great opportunities ahead for that aspect of what we do. As the school, also we've we've welcomed a new dean last year. So uh, Srikant Tatar has stepped in as our dean. He is a design thinking guy. Uh, he loves design thinking, and he is a super innovator. Uh, I have a feeling that under his leadership, we're going to be exploring a lot of uh, a lot of innovations in both the way that we operate as a business and the way that we uh, deliver education to students. That's incredible. That's a it's a very exciting time. Um, and I know um, for some of our listeners, they'll also be um, familiar with cold calls. So anything that you want to speak about how that came to life um, or what, what listeners need to be listening out for there? Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, cold Call is a podcast uh, that I host where I interview HBS faculty about business cases they've written. Uh, every class at Harvard Business School is based on a business case, and these are narrative sort of stories, and each one of them has a protagonist, a business figure who's making some kind of a pivotal decision. And uh, the, the cases are fun to read. They're even more fun to discuss in the classroom. So um, uh, I've, I've created a podcast to give the faculty who author these cases a chance to describe them and talk about the lessons that they impart. These are like 25-minute you know, business classes. Uh, you won't get a degree if you listen, but you'll get some great knowledge and insights. Uh, and you know, we are um, reaching about 2 million listeners a year. So I would certainly encourage people to check it out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever they listen. It's uh, HBR Presents Cold Call is, how, is what you'll find it under. Incredible. Well, such a pleasure to speak with you and, and so much exciting stuff going and uh, really looking forward to, uh, to staying in touch and hearing about how everything continues to evolve for you. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you, Brian. 